0: Well, good afternoon, Redemption. Great to be among you. Whenever I preach somewhere for the first time, I take a little look around to see if I know anyone. I'm not recognizing anyone. I don't know you, you're waving at me. Oh, there are a few. There's some students from a long, long time ago. You're looking older. Well, we say you haven't changed a bit. You guys have changed, but it's good to see you. Great to be with you, great to be among God's people, and what an awesome, tremendous privilege it is to open uh, God's word with you. To that end, turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Just as we were singing there, there was one verse, actually the title, was it our third song, really grabbed my attention. I brought uh, the worship outline up here with me just to make sure I didn't forget the title. Christ our hope in life and death. Christ our hope in life and death. What a beautiful statement, sentiment. Christ our hope in life and death. Not a vain hope. Not a misplaced hope, certainly not an empty hope. Uh, The story is told of a father who arrived late for his son's little league baseball game. Maybe you've heard this one. Pulls into the parking lot, parks the car, locks it up, and walks toward the ball diamond. And there's little Johnny, 10 years of age, standing in left field. And dad needs to pass left field to get to the bleachers. And so he pulls up close to the fence, gets Johnny's attention and asks him, how's it going out there, son? And Johnny turns and he replies, we're losing 20 to nothing. And his dad staggers back a little bit, not quite sure what to say, and comes back with, son, don't give up hope. To which little Johnny kind of furrowed his brow and quickly replied, why would I give up hope? We haven't even batted yet. That isn't hope. What is it? Wishful thinking. Christ, our hope in life and death. This isn't wishful thinking. Well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I get a new bike or iPad or something for Christmas. This isn't something empty or vacuous. This is something with a firm foundation. It is a confident expectation. Because it is rooted in the unchanging word of God. And so with that in mind, seeing as we sang that, Christ our hope in life and death. What I want to do then, I was going to this text anyway in Galatians. What I want to do is suggest to you the few verses we're going to read. Five reasons why Christ is our hope in life and death. You got it? Five reasons why we can sing it, five reasons why we can claim it, five reasons why we can celebrate it, and five reasons why we can believe it, take it to heart, and orient our lives around it 24-7. So five reasons why Christ is our hope in life and death. We find them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 5, hear please the word of the Lord graced you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. That's our text, we're going to squeeze that text And from it, we are going to observe then these five glorious reasons why we can confidently sing, Christ, our hope in life and death. Are you with me? See where we're going? And here we go. Number one, Christ is our hope in life and death because he gave himself. I lack all imagination. I am lifting it straight out of our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself. What does Paul mean? Well, we know the Lord Jesus gave himself in the incarnation, right? He who is the eternal Son of God, he who is co-equal, co-essential with the Father, became man, took to himself, assumed our humanity. In so doing, he gave himself. He gave himself by assuming the form of a servant and walking among us. I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He gave himself by healing. He gave himself in his preaching and teaching ministry. He gave himself as he endured hunger, Thirst, sleepless nights, he gave himself as he endured the hostility and open hostility and opposition on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees, the indifference from the crowds. He gave himself, he gave himself, he gave himself. But by far, eclipsing all of these, what does Paul have in view? Christ gave himself where? Upon Calvary's cross. Christ gave himself, his whole, in his entirety, body and soul, as he was suspended between heaven and earth, lifted up upon the cross. Shredded flesh, writes Greg Gilbert, against unforgiving wood, iron stakes pounded through bone and racked nerves, joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer dead weight of the body, public humiliation before the eyes of family, friends, and the world. And please, please, please do not miss this. Through it all, he never hurled screams of rage toward the heavens. He never screamed threats of defiance toward the crowds. He never uttered sobs of self-pity. He never claimed his rights. He never promoted his interests. He never even considered himself. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, he gave himself completely, fully, entirely Christ our hope in life and death that is reason number one here is reason number two as we make our way through our text Christ gave himself for what Paul says there in the fourth verse for our sins a very unpopular subject in our day the word sin all but lost from the English vocabulary outside of certain segments of the church, we walk out into our society, our world, sin, a forgotten word, a misunderstood word. By and large, as we just kind of take stock and as we look around, and you university students, you know this, especially if you're dabbling in the humanities like psychology or sociology or anthropology, any of those ologies, and you know that when it comes to human behavior, And especially when it comes to what we might describe as deviant human behavior, as far as our society is concerned, there are only two plausible explanations on the table. What's explanation number one? Nature. Deviant human behavior is the result of what? Some sort of genetic disorder, some sort of biological cause or reason behind it. And the remedy our society posits for anything that they perceive to be or deem to be the result of nature is a pill or something of that magnitude. Or within our society, some would say, well, yes, nature, but equally important is nurture. And so if we want to explain why people do what they do, and we want to explain what people are, and if we especially want to get our minds around deviant human behavior, well, we look to their social environment. We look to their upbringing, we look to their family, we look to their education, their lack thereof. We look at what they had, what they hadn't. The plus and the minuses of their upbringing, their social context. And if we want to remedy that behavior, well then education becomes God with a small g, the cure all. For that ails and ills our society. Nature, nurture, nature, nurture, nature, nurture. That is all our society has to offer. And the Bible says something radically different. While nature and nurture might exasperate the problem, friend, they are not the problem. The problem is you. And the problem is me. The problem is the human heart, and the problem is that three-letter word: sin. And we turn to Romans chapter 3 and there Paul, in, he just takes us by the hand and he drags us kicking and screaming into the depths, the darkness of our sin. And there he makes it so plain. He tells us, there is none righteous. How many? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become, I know we don't want to hear this, we need to hear this. They have become worthless, spoiled fruit, good for nothing, you throw it out. They become spoiled. There is none who does good. No, not one. And there we come face to face with the human predicament. And there we come face to face with human reality and human experience, and it is objectively verifiable that we have a wiring problem. And The problem is this. We are lovers of self and haters of God by nature. Christ, our only hope in life and death, he gave himself for our sins. Later in his epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3, Paul is going to make it very clear. There he is going to state that Christ redeemed us from what? The curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. That when the Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross, it was purposeful. There was an aim, there was an end in view that God was displaying him publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And that curse that Adam and Eve incurred when they fell, that curse under which each of us is born and enter into this world because of our sin, rebellion, and defiance toward God, that as the Lord Jesus hangs upon Calvary's cross, he became a curse for us. And hell comes to Calvary's cross, and the Lord Jesus Christ swallows it whole. He is cursed that we might be blessed, right? Forsaken that we might be received and welcomed. He is bruised that we might be healed. He is punished. That we might be justified and forgiven and set free. Christ, our only hope in life and death. Because Christ gave himself for our sins. That's reason number two. Reason number three is this. Just continue on with me in the text. It's not very difficult. Christ gave himself, yes, for our sins. And to do what else? To deliver us from the present evil age. Just drop the word evil for a moment and put those two words together, present age. The present age. Paul uses that language a lot in his epistles. What does he mean by it? It's sort of a key phrase in his theology and for understanding how Paul sees reality. And how Paul sees the universe and human history. The present age, essentially, when we just break it down, the present age is this. It is the entire period of time from the fall of Adam and Eve and the entrance of sin, death, the curse following hot on their heels into this world. Period of time from that historical event right through to the future Christ's second coming. This is the present age. Paul says it's evil. Paul says it is an age, it is a time period being constructed on premises, foundations, void of God. It is an age that is marked by spiritual blindness. Spiritual darkness, spiritual bondage. Again, it is objectively verifiable. I was raised here in Canada. I don't have my head in the sand. I keep up to date on what is happening and transpiring around us. And you see this increasing encroachment of spiritual darkness, absolute spiritual blindness where people revel in the absurd, and more to the point, I see evidence of this spiritual darkness and blindness in my own heart, in my own soul. I see this antipathy towards all that is God. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered time and space, The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself upon the cross. Gave himself for our sins. Did so to deliver us. The word is literally rescue. To rescue us from this present evil age. He rescues us in two ways. He rescues it from its present manifestation. He delivers us from bondage to this present evil age. The light goes on. Doesn't it? The scales are removed from our eyes. We see things we never understood before. There's a reality we weren't even aware of before. There are truths which before were merely abstract ideas that now resonate and captivate our minds and our hearts as he rescues us, delivers us from the spiritual darkness and blindness that marks this present age, but he rescues us in a second way. This present evil age is marked for judgment, folks. I'm not sure we talk about that enough today as Christians. The day of reckoning is coming. Paul states it so clearly in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 1. He tells us there that there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. Do you remember this text? The Lord Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What happened to the meek and lowly baby in the manger? The mighty king coming in judgment, folks. And he will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire, the same fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah, the same fire that consumed Aaron's sons when they dared to adulterate, if you like, degenerate the sacrifices and the worship of the one true living God. And he will appear with his mighty angels in a flaming fire inflicting. We don't like this word, but it's right there. It's the holy word of God. Inflicting what? Vengeance. That's the word. Vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Christ, my only hope in life and death. Oh, there is no condemnation, the poet writes. There is no hell for me, The torment and the fire my eyes shall never see. For me, there is no sentence. For me, death has no sting. Because the Lord who loves me shall shield me with his wing. My only hope in life and death. Let me just pause here. It's as good a place as any. Am I preaching to the choir? I doubt it. Many of you probably are choir members. You know what I mean by that, right? Preaching to the choir. Uh, But I'm hazarding to guess that in a hall this size and with as many people who are here right now, there is one, there is two, there is a handful, there is a dozen, there are more perhaps. You cannot claim Christ, my hope in life and death. Have you been tracking with what I've been saying? You might be thinking to yourself, well, you're just trying to scare me talking about hell and judgment. Yes, friend, I am trying to scare you. I make no apology for it. We are talking about eternal realities. We are talking about the eternal destiny of the soul. We are talking about what happens when we die. And guess what, friend? You will die. And I will die. What comes next? It is appointed unto man to die once. And after this, what comes? The judgment. My friend, if you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you, pay very close attention to what I'm saying. And look to the Lord Jesus. Look to this verse. And hear what the Apostle Paul is proclaiming, that the Lord Jesus gave himself. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us and rescue us from the present evil age, meaning that there is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is unshakable hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Hudson Taylor, I think it was, he was converted. Every conversion is miraculous. Hudson Taylor, just circumstances a bit different, unusual. He found a tract, I think it was, in the street one day. And he picked up this tract. And on the outside of it were simply these words. It is finished. And he was saved on the spot. It is finished. And he wrote in his journal something to this effect. Let's see if I can remember it. It's something like this. Uh, Upon a death I did not die. Upon a death I did not die. You with me so far? Upon a life... I did not live, another's death, another's life, I stake my whole eternity. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel, my friend. Upon a death I did not die, the death of the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for my sins. Upon a life I did not live, the perfect life of the Lord Jesus, so beautiful and wonderful and acceptable in the sight of God, another's death, another's life, I stake my whole eternity and I simply receive the Lord Jesus as my Savior as God offers him to me freely. I receive the Lord Jesus through faith and I become one with the Lord Jesus through faith whereby his death is now counted to be mine, the penalty for my sin paid in full, and his perfect life is now counted to be mine whereby I stand clothed in his beautiful righteousness in the sight of God. Faith, it is a simple word. You think of the prodigal son. Remember that story, everyone? And you think of that young man going to his father and essentially saying to his father, look, Dad, uh, I wish you were dead. And give me what's mine now. That's what he was saying. I wish you were dead, old man. Can't wait. Give me your inheritance, the inheritance that is mine. His father hands it over, and away that young man goes, and you know, you know the story, what transpires. Lives a degenerate life, wastes everything, and then finds himself one day in the muck and the mire with a swine, right? And uh, for all I know, there could be somebody here right now, that's you, in the muck and the mire, the swine, a human being created in the very image of God created for fellowship with the Almighty. But your life right now, nothing but muck and the mire and the swine. And the young man came to his senses, didn't he? He came to his senses. I'm going home. And he starts that journey home, and while he's a long way off, his father is watching, and he sees him coming. And when his father spies him coming over the crest of the hill, what does his father do? Starts making a list of 101 things that young man will have to do to prove himself. Is that how it goes? The old man furrows his brow. Well, we'll see how this goes. Going to come up with some sort of penance that this young man's going to have to perform to earn my favor. Cold shoulder? No. What was the old man's response when he saw him coming? He ran to him. Oh, God's willingness to receive penitent sinners boggles the mind, my friend. And just how lavish his love is for us in Christ Jesus. And just how willing he is to welcome and receive those who come to him through faith In, I'm emphasizing in, don't mistake it. There is no love outside of Christ. There is no acceptance outside of Christ. There is no forgiveness outside of Christ. But there are all of that and much more in Christ. That when we come to this God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, He welcomes us as beloved sons. Our hope in life and death. Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is reason number three. Here is reason number four, quickly. Moving on in our text, follow along as I begin reading it again. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, that was number one, for our sins, that was number two, to deliver us from the present evil age, that was number three. Now here's number four, according. It was always God's plan. According to the will predetermined decree of our god and father. You go back into the Old Testament and we see this confirmed. We go back, for example, to the servant songs. Are you familiar with the servant songs out of the book of Isaiah? And is it Isaiah? It's either Isaiah 42 or 49. I can't remember at the moment. But there the servant says something to this effect. He, that is God, has made me a polished arrow. It's interesting. You hunters, you all son perked up. He has made me a polished arrow and has hid me in his quiver. Not an ordinary arrow, not for ordinary use. A special polished arrow that is being guarded, being kept, being preserved for just the right moment. Just the right time, whereby in the predetermined counsels and decrees of God himself, as Paul is going to say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, what does God do? He takes that well-polished arrow, sets it in his bow, and he lets loose. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Always His plan, an eternal plan, sent forth His Son, born of a woman. It's the incarnation. Born under the law to pay its penalty so that what? He might redeem us from the law, its curse, and we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And he goes on to say, because we are sons, not only has he sent sent his son into the world, but because we are sons, he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we now cry, Abba, Father, all according to the will of God. It is a tremendous manifestation of his love. It is a beautiful declaration of the love of the triune God that Father set his love upon his people before the foundation of the world. In time, he sends his Son as the revelation of that love, as his Son offers himself, gives himself up upon Calvary's cross. And in time, he sends the Spirit into our hearts by whom we now cry, what? Abba, Father. The eternal plan of redemption, according to the eternal counsels and decrees of God for the revelation of his love for us. And now that the Spirit dwells in us, we have testified to us this wonderful reality that we are in a living, vibrant relationship fellowship with god himself thomas goodwin he was an old english puritan he put it this way trying to break it down and help people understand he said look you imagine you will imagine a dad and his young son three years of age let's call him johnny and dad and johnny are out in the countryside for a walk on some trail among the trees and all of a sudden unexpected without a word any warning dad whirls around picks up johnny puts him in this big bear hug, whereby the little tight can barely breathe, kisses him on the forehead, he's only three years old, he can still get away with that, and then whispers in his ear, I love you, son. Has Johnny acquired any new knowledge concerning his father's love for him? No. No new knowledge. He already knew his dad loved him. He knew his dad loved him, his dad provides for him, his dad cares for him, plays with him, disciplines with him, disciplines him. He knows his dad loves him, but at that moment, he has entered into what? A new experience of that love. According to the will of God, the Father sent the Son in time to redeem us, the revelation of that love. And the Father has sent the Spirit into our hearts, sealing that love to us, whereby we now cry, Abba, Father, Christ, our hope in life and death. And we come now finally to the fifth and final reason. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, we're quickly running out of room. Let me read the text for you. And what I want you to do is listen for a little phrase. I'm going to slow down. It's used twice. I'll slow down for the sake of emphasis to make sure you get it. All right? So here we go again. Our text, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That was slow enough? You got it? And the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And so here is the fifth and final reason why Christ is our only hope in life and death. Christ gave himself to bring us to God. Just pause for a moment, friend, and think about it. Consider it. Meditate upon it. That God becomes ours in Christ Jesus. Just take that little phrase. I mean, use your sanctified imagination. Just in your mind's eye, picture it our God. Two words, right? The personal possessive pronoun, it's plural. Our God. Our God and think it through. Who is this God? And the language of the psalm is Psalm 145 Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. And his greatness is what? Unsearchable, unfathomable, incomprehensible and his greatness is incomprehensible. Why? Because he is infinite. When we say that God is infinite, we are not using the word infinite in a mathematical sense. When we say God is infinite, we are declaring and celebrating that he is without limitation. He is infinite in regard to his being. Theologians like to call this aseity. These words might be new to some of us. That's all right. We need to learn new words when it comes to God because he is not like us. His aseity, meaning what? He has life in himself. He is not contingent or dependent upon anything outside of himself. Infinite in regards to his being. He is infinite in regards to space. That is called ubiquity, omnipresence, a word familiar to most of us. Where is God? God is everywhere. He fills all things, yet is limited to none, and all things exist in him. And he is infinite when it comes to time. We call that eternality. What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? I had a college, question, a college student asked me that one about eight or nine months ago. What was God? He thought he was being smart. He wasn't. What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? I had to count to ten. I have to do that sometimes when I hear questions like that. What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? There is nothing before the heavens and the earth. There is no moment before the first moment in the beginning. There is no time. And God is not part of the succession of time, past, present, future. He knows nothing of eternity past or eternity future. As he declared to Moses centuries ago, I am. And he dwells in one indivisible point called eternity. And he is an infinite God. He is an incomprehensible God, an unfathomable God. His greatness is unsearchable. Back to that little phrase in your mind's eye. What comes before God? Our God. That we are brought into a relationship with Him. That we enjoy the fulfillment of His great covenant promise. I will be their God. Wow and they shall be my people. It means his power is ours to protect us, his wisdom to direct us, his mercy to pity us, his grace to pardon us, his love to refresh us, his joy to satisfy us. In Christ, God becomes ours. Therefore, Christ is what? Our only hope in life and death. Oh, my friend, if you're an unbeliever, I I trust these truths are resonating with you on some level. And the Spirit of God might give you eyes to see. See, yes, your own sin. And to behold the matchless glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the choir, believers, I trust this is so encouraging. Hope, especially in our days, it is not vain. It is not empty. It is not wishful thinking. It is a confident, absolute expectation because it is rooted and fixed and it centers upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope in life and death.